When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Feminism is a useful lens through which to view the law because it can reveal unspoken assumptions where the disputes seem almost ideological rather than legal or philosophical. Professor Susan Williams of Indiana University's Law School takes a dispassionate view of the speech debates and shows us that they tend to advance one of two general views. Free speech leads either to the truth or free speech allows citizens to be fully autonomous. Both views are important, but not easily reconciled. The first, where free speech will let the truth rise to the top, is Cartesian. The second view, where speech enables the subject to be an autonomous agent in society, is subjective. Professor Williams explains how there may be a better way of conceptualizing free speech that is based on a relational truth theory and narrative autonomous theory. In our conversation, I saw the significance of free speech rights in a new way, and Professor Williams explained why the current impasse in debates over free speech can be productively resolved if and when we agree that living in the world means also accepting a shared reality. Professor Williams is the author of Truth, Autonomy, and Speech, Feminist Theory and the First Amendment, which was published in 2004, and also the editor of several books on constitutional design on how the Constitution can be used to set up a functioning and even well-functioning society named Constitutionalism and Social Difference in Pan-Asia and Constituting Equality, Gender Equality, and Comparative Constitutional Law. At the University of Indiana's Law School, Professor William teaches courses on the First Amendment, on constitutional law, on constitutional design, and on feminist theory. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. First of all, I'm really excited to speak with Professor Susan Williams today, who is the Walter W. Foskett Professor of Law, and you're also the Director of the Center for Constitutional Democracy at Indiana University in Bloomington. Thank you, first of all, Susan, for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to speak with you. So you've written several books, and I've read two of them and most of one of them. So the books that I was really interested in, because they make such a major contribution to jurisprudence, is 
The first one is truth, autonomy, and speech, feminist theory, and the First Amendment, where you say two things, that the law has a way of focusing the mind really well because it's about real people and real experiences. And while the First Amendment, the Constitution, these things are very abstract, there's a way in which they have an impact on the ground. As we see, and we'll get to this a little bit, all the speech controversies over the last two years, which in some ways are repetitions of speech controversies from the 90s, but also not. They're also different. And the second thing you say is that feminism in particular has a way of bringing to the surface and throwing into relief and making visible some of the unspoken assumptions of the law. And some of those assumptions may actually be counterproductive or biased or silently agreed upon. And feminism has a way to bring them to the surface. So you've used feminism as a lens through which to look at the law and look at the deeper philosophical underpinnings. So I wanted to start there, this kind of way of bringing into contact jurisprudence and feminism, rather than it's a, it's a clash or it's a critique, but you're saying there's something productive happening there. Yeah, absolutely. And the more common way for people to think about gender issues and feminist perspectives with respect to law is to look for actual problems in the law that tend to affect women. So there's a huge feminist literature about rape law. There's a very large feminist literature about sexual harassment law. So aspects of law or areas of legal doctrine that are of particular concern to women and where women's experiences have perhaps not sufficiently shaped the law's response to particular problems. That's the more common way. What I wanted to do with that book was actually to take a step back to look at the theoretical foundations of an area of law and to use a feminist lens on those rather than on the legal doctrine directly. So in the First Amendment area, the most common feminist criticisms focus on pornography law. And that's the traditional approach, as I said, right? Picking an area of law where it's obvious that women might have a different experience or a different perspective. But what I wanted to do was ask, well, you know, what about the stuff that really doesn't look like it's about gender? that looks like it's about underlying concepts that would be seen as universal. Might we use a feminist lens to look at those and then discover that actually there's a gendered aspect to that as well. So, uh, so yeah. two of the categories that are assumed to be universal and not specifically dealing with women in their lived experience. So pornography would be one aspect where the inroads have been made to say this is an equality issue based on gendered existence. And you're saying the two categories that you identify in free speech are truth and autonomy as a kind of two tenets or principle on which most of the defenses and justifications, rightly so, justifications for free speech are made. So the first is truth. Could you say a little bit about that? What is, isn't truth universal? We all accept it, et cetera. <laughs> yes, we do. And that's actually part of the point. <laughs> that is, I think there is a kind of common sense understanding of truth that is, in fact, connected to a strong and deep philosophical tradition, but that nonetheless is just part of sort of the air we breathe for people who don't know anything about that philosophical tradition. And I call that a Cartesian model. That's a name that I, of course, did not invent. And there are feminists in philosophy who have devoted a huge amount of attention to the gendered aspects of Cartesianism. So yeah, most people think that Truth means that we have beliefs that correspond to an objective external reality. Objective in the sense that 
all people using the appropriate faculties, whether that's reason or sense perception or both, would be able to tell that that's what the reality is. Um, and external in the sense that it's not shaped by either our personal, individual characteristics and perspectives or by the social and cultural frameworks that we bring to bear. And the feminist critique has been parallel to a number of critiques coming from other starting points like pragmatists and postmodernists and some forms of Marxists. And all of these have shared a kind of social constructionist approach to criticize that model of truth. So the Cartesian one presumes we all ultimately will see the same truth out there because it's this independent reality. We have the same capacities to make sense of it. So our beliefs will ultimately correspond to this reality. If they are false or incorrect, they will be modified, but there will be a kind of universal established truth out there. The social constructivist one, it says what about this subject that's supposed to discern this truth? It says that the subject always brings to the process of knowledge creation all sorts of baggage some of which is very personal and individual, but much of which is cultural and given by our society. And that it isn't actually ever possible to see reality except through those lenses. Um, we will never get to the other side. And that. the baggage can be both positive and negative. It could be That's situated right. in a way that you don't have access to forms of expressions, or it could be you went to the right schools and you speak the right idiom and you sound the right way, you're more persuasive. So this is a as much an epistemological problem as a social problem. So you're sort of saying the epistemology is supposed to say it's all neutral, kind of Kantian space and time are the categories by which we judge reality. Everything else is secondary, doesn't influence that. Right. That's exactly it. That is, one of the major points in the book was to try to argue that trying to separate these really fundamental issues into categories like epistemology versus moral and political theory is not workable. That all of our fundamental epistemological issues have moral and political foundations and implications and vice versa. And you start out by truth and then we'll get to autonomy, but you're saying at the same time, truth has always been one of the major principles by which free speech, legislation, jurisprudence, and principles have been defended, which doesn't have to lead to absolutism, but it leads to generally a very robust First Amendment doctrine. So what's the link between free speech and truth in the more conventional Cartesian sense before we get to the critique of truth? Sure. So John Stuart Mill is the foundation for this argument in modern jurisprudence, although he's certainly not the first to have made it. He's the one the Supreme Court is most clearly aware of. And basically what he said is that speech is the best mechanism, indeed the only insurance we have for our ability to ultimately ascertain the truth. And this argument. It's a beautifully elegant argument where he explains how if the opinion we want to suppress is true, then obviously we are hurting our ability to find truth when we suppress it. If the opinion we want to suppress is false, he also thinks we are hurting our ability to find truth because challenge by falsehood is part of what keeps truth lively in the minds of believers. It makes us understand why we believe what we believe. Uh, John Stuart Mill is kind of the prime philosopher for current jurisprudence in a, in a general sense, although there are lots of people who have issues with Mill's idea of epistemology. And you could put other philosophers in that place. So you could put Descartes or you could Plato in that place. He would have a very different understanding. So it's that the truth will be kind of winnowed out by everybody arguing. And since everybody comes from the same position, ultimately, then the best possible version of the truth will win out. That's the court's idea. 
Yes, I think that's fair to say. I wouldn't say every justice has always believed that. There has been some variation on the court. But to the extent that the court provides a theoretical foundation for freedom of speech, this is one of the two most common ones. Democracy is the other. So the thing you are most... So can you talk about that? What's the relation between speech and democracy? Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so the court often will say that the reason we need free speech is because that kind of robust political debate is necessary for democracy. They very rarely explain exactly why, and there are multiple theories of democracy that point in really two very different directions. Some democracy theorists, like Alexander Mickeljohn, would say that the important person here is not the speaker but the listener. So what we're trying to do is to make sure that listeners get all the information they need to exercise their power as democratic citizens wisely, right, to vote wisely. And this power is most concretely in voting. Exactly. Or in exactly. referenda, but that's unusual, in, but we're in a representative democracy, so it would be usually through voting, selecting anybody from your council member to your president. Mickeljohn says, unless we have all the options in front of us, we shouldn't restrict any. All the versions should be there. Then you can decide in the most informed fashion. So it's an educated citizen. Exactly. exactly. So that's the sort of listener-focused version. There's also a speaker-focused version of democracy. And Robert Post, one of your other conversations, is one of the most prominent modern democracy theorists to take a more speaker-focused view. He would say that actually it's the ability to participate in the public dialogue through which democratic decisions are made that justifies the exercise of government power over citizens. So essentially, it's legitimate for the government to exercise power over me only and to the extent that I am in fact free to speak up and add my voice to the process through which that policy is made. So Post says, strangely enough, that the government restricts individual speech. It will become illegitimate in the eyes of many because they will think you're suppressing this alternative way of running our country, our society, our culture, and I don't believe anymore it's in the interest of the common good or something. Yeah, and less for the observer and more for the person who's actually silenced, <laughs> that for that person, their self-government, their power of self-government has essentially been destroyed. So both of these are democracy theories. And what I suggest, and, and again, I'm not alone in doing this, Ed Baker made very similar arguments, that the listener-focused democracy theory is really a special application of the truth argument. And the speaker-focused democracy theory is really a special application of the autonomy argument. So in the end, I think speech theories come down to truth and autonomy. And wouldn't the law at this point say, yeah, but we recognize that all these people are individuals in this pluralistic society. Everybody is situated differently. That's the whole point. And then they can express their differences and talk about their experience, which is going to be a category we could look at as the basis of feminism. But they say, we totally account for that. So you're a woman or you're a man, you can just express yourself. You have the right to argue for your position. Isn't that how enough feminism would happen for us? Ah, okay. So can you have feminism within a Cartesian system? Sure, I think basically we do, right? <laughs> but would feminism, if taken seriously, cause you to reconsider the assumptions of the Cartesian system? I think the answer to that is also yes. And that was what I was trying to do. What is feminism when taken seriously? Okay, feminism when taken seriously. Yes, uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I think what it means is that we have to actually use the tools of feminism, 
which have to do with looking hard at women's experiences, taking them seriously. And we have to use those tools not only at the level of pragmatic doctrine and institutional design and all of that, but also at the level of conceptual foundations, right? So the conceptual foundation, meaning the way the law is set up, the kind of ground rules for what even the law can understand or hear, for example. So there's examples where women have not always had full legal standing. You quote a justice who says, a married couple is one person before the law. Or as Patricia Williams has argued in her first book, Alchemy of Race and Rights, that African-Americans for a long time had no legal standing. So if the law doesn't recognize you as a subject, how can the law then find remedies for your undue burdens or whatever? So it has to challenge the construction of the law, the parameters, the ground rules, as well as the implementation. Exactly. And, you know, the first sort of large movement in feminism in the Anglo-American world, at least, was to say to legal systems, you should actually take your own values and assumptions seriously enough to apply them to women. So, in other words, that was the sort of claim to be included as a person, right? Not to be seen as something less than or something merely an accompaniment to a man. Take me seriously as a person within what you already mean as a person. And now, I think the next step is for feminism to say, you know, your picture of what it means to be a person really doesn't fit my experience nearly as well as it fits yours. Let's talk about that. So the key word is experience here. So essentially women were saying, your epistemology doesn't account for my experience or it relegates my experience to a secondary condition or to something you can define from your perspective, but it's not my experience. So it's from sort of the yellow wallpaper to being gaslighted, it's sort of women being told you're not really experiencing this. For example... You're experiencing pleasure when you're really experiencing pain. Or when someone says, this isn't feeling right, you're saying, no, you don't get it. Right. That's right. And Alison Jagger is a feminist philosopher who I think has done a wonderful job in really digging into this idea. She calls them outlaw emotions. It's a great phrase that really captures the point. So yes, I think that's exactly right. And I think what's interesting is that that experience actually is relevant not only to the immediate stuff that we see, you know, the legal doctrines in the court cases or the laws on the books, but also to the underlying conceptual frameworks that inform all of that. Right. And I think what's interesting that this through line of the word experience runs through from the 70s, where women say our experiences matter, this idea of outlaw emotions, then Catherine McKinnon saying women's experience both matters and the law has a way of systematically not acknowledging or silencing it. And then what we have today, which I want to get to a little later in the conversation, we have these controversies about speech where people saying, I have an experience. And other people saying, well, the First Amendment tells you you shouldn't have it. What does it matter to you? Or the law cannot deal with emotions. It's, it's personal, subjective. It's not Cartesian. It ha it's tinged by your social standing, by your background. And if we devolve to that, then everybody will just have their own experience. And the critique of this is always that men usually say, well, I have an experience too then. Right. <laughs> so what yes. happened with feminism and experience, how it moved the epistemology, it said the epistemology doesn't quite capture this for half of humanity. 
Yes, that's right. And I do think there's a risk here. And, and I try and outline that in the book. That is, if you take social constructionism, you know, all the way to its logical conclusion, there is a tremendous risk of deteriorating into just simple relativism, right? You know, you have your perspective, I have mine. There is nothing that we can say to each other, and there is no way to decide between them. And that, I think, is, in fact, an unacceptable outcome for feminism. Feminism is more than just a theory. Feminism is a political program. The goal here is, in fact, to change the world in ways that make women more equal. And if we have lost the ability to say, no, no, we really should do this, you know, this is a better way of looking at it and a better way of handling it, then we've really lost a lot of the value of feminism. So what I was trying to do was to to understand the challenge in a way that would make it possible for us to go on arguing with people who have different perspectives and opinions and making some progress in those arguments while abandoning the Cartesian foundations that we thought were necessary to that project. And you come up with a different way of defining truth and autonomy because, and this is sort of an, an argument you make, and you wouldn't move from that to say, because the Cartesian way of thinking the truth is universal and subject-centered, individualistic, and autonomy allows everybody to exercise their right to be who they are, those haven't served, we could call it feminism or genuine equality or justice, which is also the, uh, the last two terms, equality and justice, are what the law openly wants to uphold. Yes. So you're saying feminism is directly linked to genuine equality, genuine justice, but truth and autonomy have to be modified for that. Yes, and indeed, I mean, I hope that part of what comes through in the book is that I have a certain amount of fondness for the Cartesian project, right? I think it's hard to be an academic and not. Right? You wrote a whole um, book, exactly. That's yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's where we all start, right? Whether we end up there or not. So I don't mean to sort of just dump on Cartesianism in general, right? I mean to, to recognize the impulse, the liberatory impulse that I believe is actually at the heart of Cartesianism. But what I really want people to see is it can't work. The system that we designed to try to achieve that liberation is inherently unstable, and it will necessarily deteriorate in the ways that we have seen it do so and lead to inequality. So we have to try something else. The system will ultimately, let's say, balance out in favor of the powerful or the mainstream or the conventional. So the law, in a certain way, you're saying, can be a tool for radical important social change, but it would tend to tilt back to maintaining the status quo because a law doesn't want to upset itself, as it were. Well, right, as long as it has those sorts of Cartesian foundations, exactly. And indeed, I, I actually believe that the way I describe it in the conclusion of the book is that I think that Cartesianism and liberal autonomy, the tradition for autonomy as well, they're very closely linked, and they share both a really admirable dream of liberation and a really terrifying nightmare of chaos. And I think that what happens is that the nightmare ends up dominating the dream. The nightmare ends up being the major motivation factor in the development of the conceptual framework, precisely because the framework won't actually protect you from that. And so it's constantly coming up. 
what's the fear of the chaos? What is the chaos that this idea of a subject-centered truth and this kind of identificatory autonomy can keep us from sliding into? So I think for truth, the chaos is, in fact, what we were just talking about, which is that we'll end up in this radical relativism where, you know, everybody has their own individual perspective. There's nothing even larger than an individual perspective that's coherent. And there's nothing we can say to each other and no way to resolve our differences. And that is, in fact, terrifying, right? That would be a terrible state of affairs. I have to say, I wrote this book 15 years ago just a little detour here. 15 years ago, the intellectual landscape was such that it was people on the left who were making the social constructionist argument, and people on the right were using this risk of radical relativism to decredibilize people on the left. What I did not anticipate, and what I think we have seen, is that now part of the right wing has adopted the social constructionist vision. Essentially what they're saying is, this is my perspective. I don't really care what yours is. Why should I listen if all perspectives are equally valid? So we're in a, a really new world here in terms of how it's being used politically. But it doesn't change the fundamental sort of challenge, which is we have to explain why social constructionism is not equivalent to radical relativism. We have to explain how we can believe that everyone's perspective is socially constructed and still believe it's possible to argue productively about which perspective is going to guide social decision-making. And socially constructed, meaning you are situated in society because society is arranged in certain ways. It's not all abstract agents so that the law recognizes this situatedness, which the law does, of course, in other areas of the law. When it comes to this issue of free speech, the law tends to move quickly to abstraction. I just read Catherine McKinnon's part of Life Politics, where all of her speeches are collected, and she warns over and over against abstraction. And Andrea Dworkin said, the most dangerous thing is an abstract principle without context. <laughs> and they mean to say, to slip back into Cartesianism as a safeguarding against this will ultimately hurt the people who don't have access to defining the terms. Yes. And indeed, I think it hurts everybody, actually. I think it, it does exacerbate social inequality, but it's not particularly good for the people who are on top of the hierarchy either, because it prevents them from understanding the ways in which their own perspectives are being shaped, which might actually give them more freedom. I interviewed Catherine Stimson about Simone de Beauvoir, who says, men are caught in the dream of alienation women of subordination. So what you're saying, it hurts the people in power because they're alienated from knowing the conditions which they, or the techniques or the, the strategies they use, actually. So what yes. you want to say, the law could yes. open up its perspective and become yes. more productive. Yes, yes. By adopting visions of truth and autonomy that actually are fundamentally relational, both of them would be fundamentally relational. What that means is that truth is not a picture that matches some object of an external reality. Truth is a product, excuse me, of a process of knowledge creation. And that process is a social enterprise. It is never engaged in individually. It is always engaged in collectively. You know, the sole scientist in his laboratory is nonetheless building on the work of many other people and contributing in turn to the work of many other people. It's a dialogue. Every scholar, I think, knows that. And that the goal is, in fact, to produce a product, a truth, that will allow us 
to relate to each other in certain ways. The way I try to get out of all of these dilemmas that are generated by the Cartesian approach is to do a, a kind of philosophical anthropology, right? To ask, what do we want truth to do for us? What's the purpose that it serves? And then to think about how you could come up with a social constructionist vision of truth that would nonetheless serve those purposes. And you come up with this really productive idea, I think, that there's deep critique, which is one purpose of speech, and then this kind of shared reality, that the truth is not the truth with the capital T that sort of runs roughshod over everybody, but it's a shared reality. It's not a kind of meek consensus that we sort of all believe that two plus two is four, but it's a shared reality that we actually invested in reaching a truth that we can have consensus in, which is already found in other philosophers. Kant has this idea of sensus communis, of a shared sense. So this shared reality for you is a principle that could work as a justification for free speech doctrine rather than this more static one of truth itself. Yes, shared reality, deep critique, working, and also this connection to something outside of human beings. I think those are the four sort of things we use truth to do in a very productive way in our intellectual lives. And I do think that a social constructionist vision of truth can accommodate all four of those. You rename them, so deep critique, shared reality, meaning yes. with a capital M or transcendent something beyond the human. And, right. And, the f and working. And working um, solutions, like real life applicants. Exactly. Practical, right? Practical implications. And I think we need we need something that will allow us to do all four of those things, right? Those are all four really valuable and important projects. And truth is the name we have given to the concept that allows us to do those things. And I think a social constructionist vision of truth can. Just to bring things back to current events now, I think part of what we're seeing right now is, in fact, the breakdown of shared reality. The fact that we actually have relatively little at this point that we can say is a shared, understood reality across our political spectrum. And while shared reality and deep critique are often seen as intention. I think part of what we're discovering, and I believe this to be true, is that if you go too far in either direction, you lose not only the other one, but the very one that you were seeking to guarantee. So having lost shared reality, we have actually lost the capacity for deep critique as well. So what we need is to find a way to provide, in a sense, I describe this in terms of context because, of course, the point in relational truth is that it's contextual, right? So we need to find a way to build a context that allows us the adequate materials both for shared reality and deep critique. So you're identifying this crisis today, which is related to this phenomenon of post-truth, alternative facts, mm -hmm. fake news, that the arbiters of truth, which in democracies are importantly the press, which is a First mm -hmm. Amendment protection universities, which are not mentioned in the First Amendment, which is quite interesting because in other constitutions, and I know you've worked so much on creating constitutions and you work as an advisor on countries trying to seek out their constitutions, universities could be protected conceptually yes. as much as the press because they have to be the arbiters of truth, somewhat independent of politics. Yeah. You don't want universities to be shaped entirely by one or another agenda, although this entire debate in universities is that they've been too leftist and they've been too many liberal tenured radicals and academics who have corrupted truth and all that. I think what's been added 
this debate about climate change that now science mm -hmm. has also been entirely discredited by the administration and says you're not even speaking the truth. Right. Right. And this is an uncomfortable thing for leftists, right? Because actually we've been criticizing scientists for a long time because, you know, the history of scientific inquiry on gender difference is a subject of great feminist attention. And in fact, things that have been claimed to be objective have very much been motivated by and shaped by a desire to justify patriarchy. So I don't want to be forced into the position of saying, oh, right, what we need is objective science. I want to be able to respond to this alternative facts argument without retreating to Cartesianism. And I think I can. I really do. I think the answer is, actually, once you recognize that all fact-finding and theory-building is shaped by a person's social and moral context and values, then you have to actually defend the social and moral foundations of your enterprise. It's not just about science. It is about politics and morality. But that means we should be arguing about that, and that I can claim that my facts are better than yours because, in fact, I have a better moral and political basis for them. And you need to engage with me on that. So social constructivism, we could use another word of a paradigm, which is sort of Thomas Kuhn's idea, which you cite in the book as one of the early ones of the knowledge is socially constructed, meaning people in certain communities agree to certain standards. And they uphold these standards, they speak a shared language, et cetera, they pursue. So when you're saying you can counter this post-factual world through deep critique, as long as you're committed to establishing a shared reality. Exactly. So otherwise, the deep critique will go in one direction and criticize everything out of existence, as it were, and say there's no foundation at all. But the foundation is this goal or this horizon of a shared reality. Yeah, that's right. And so when I say to someone, the reason your facts are not as good as mine is because mine are based on a better moral foundation, I have to be able to describe that moral foundation in a way that actually speaks to that person's values, right? I can't be just saying I have a completely separate and different foundation from you and you should just come over to mine. I have to be able to address them where they start and find that shared reality, find that shared foundation. So we have to, in fact, and they have to be committed to listening to that, right? They have to- Yes, you yeah. talk about this, you say the mechanisms for creating a shared reality. You actually give a concrete example where you say the government should not restrict one version of shared reality over another one, but it should protect the mechanisms of getting there. Exactly. Exactly. And I actually think that's one of the contributions of the book. Again, it, I'm not unique in making this argument, although I don't think most First Amendment scholars do. Robert Post certainly does. But most most are focused on an individual right. But like Post, I think the fundamental thing about the First Amendment is the protection for systems of speech. And if we think about those systems in terms of truth and autonomy, then what we notice is they're not working very well. And in fact, we could change the rules for a lot of these systems in ways that would make them more effective. Yeah. I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by they're not working very well? It's actually, <laughs> I'll give you one concrete example. When you wrote okay. your book, Citizens United hadn't been decided yet, mm -hmm. which one of the great liberal defenders of First Amendment solid interpretation, Floyd Abrams argued as counsel, and for a lot of people on the left, ruined democracy. 
But yeah. what doesn't work when you said it doesn't quite work, the truth autonomy justification? Why don't you just leave it and then people will muddle through and the First Amendment will just help us out, which is how a lot of people have responded to these speech crises. It is. It is. And I think the problem is that people have a perception, an illusion, I would say, that the way things are is somehow not a product of government creation. Okay, it's natural or it's neutral or something like that. And so we should just leave it alone and keep the government out. But of course, the reality is the world we inhabit is already deeply shaped by all sorts of choices by government, all sorts of policy choices. So we are already in systems that are the product of government policy choices. And the only question we have is which policies. We don't actually have an option of living in a world that isn't shaped by those policies. We only have a choice between policies. So the question when you're saying it's not working, some people will say it's working just fine. And other people will say, it's not working for me. Yes. So it's a question of power also. If something benefits you, you as this is how we started. Feminism will point out the underlying assumptions, because if it's working for me, why would I ever bother questioning the moral or philosophical foundations, unless I'm a kind of ivory tower academic and like to do abstract thinking? I have no reason to examine any of the premises for the laws that work in my favor. As, yes. Except, as you said, I do... Yes. Because I'm alienated from the knowledge and from a full reality where actually everybody can participate in this construction of a shared reality. Yeah, I think that's right. That is, to the extent that people are excluded, to the extent that hierarchy is reinforced, to that extent, we are all hurt, right? Even those of us who are on the top of whatever hierarchy um, we're, we're talking about. We're all hurt because we lose the benefit of those points of view and those perspectives and because in fact, social stability is threatened by that kind of hierarchy. And I think, in fact, what we are seeing is that when we reach a certain stage in the breakdown of not even so much of the shared reality as of the desire for a shared reality, right? When people stop wanting a shared reality, when they start accepting or even desiring to be able to just retreat into their own vision of reality without challenge by anyone else. Um, we suffer tremendous social harms because of that. Where are we now after you wrote this book? Has this kind of critique, which has now been a long-standing critique of the First Amendment, is actually, let's say, to paraphrase, is serving the powerful, serving yeah. the interests of those who want to maintain the status quo, against those who say the assumptions behind it don't work really for a, a future set, a reality that works for everybody. So where are we now? And in some ways, I've asked a lot of people this. Why are we living through this free speech debate again, which we lived through in the 80s and 90s around pornography and around hate speech? And then we've lived about it three times in the last 25 years. Yeah, I think we are living through it again, but I see it as different. That is, I think back then... What was going on was voices that had not been heard were essentially saying, you need to pay attention to how I see this. You need to pay attention to how this affects me. And people with a stake in maintaining the hierarchy were saying, no, we don't because we have an objective, neutral truth that we can rely on to justify what we're doing. And your perspective doesn't matter. Now, I think, and that was bad. But what we have now is maybe even worse, <laughs> because now what people are saying is, 
that's your view. I have my view, and I don't have to listen to you because neither of our views has any claim on the other, right? There is no reason why I should care what you think, okay? And that, in a sense, is an abandonment of what at least was a sort of shared claim on reality, Cartesianism does give us all a shared claim on reality, right? We have to frame it in Cartesian terms, but if we can do that, if we can come up with data and all the rest of that, then people have to listen to us if they acknowledge Cartesianism. Once you've lost that and you've gone to where we are now, there's nothing you can say. People just turn their backs. And that, I do think, actually is a, a relatively new and in some ways much more dangerous situation. It's interesting that, the, I mean, you teach in a law school and you advise countries on writing constitutions, that the law as a nuanced abstraction would be a tool to actually advance this. You would think we could have this shared belief, at least that the law would do this. But I feel what's strange is that the law occasionally is handled to tell people, just shut up, you don't understand the law, and it's good yeah. for you. And then people say, yeah. no, it's not good for me. And they say, well, then that's too bad, but it's supposed to be good for you. So this, But there's some hope, and I also, I very strongly, obviously, I work in the academy, I very strongly believe in education, that there is still a way to instill in people these kind of democratic intuitions that shared reality is important. It's not even a full belief set, but we want to understand one another. Yes. No, I think that's really right. And it's part of why I think trying to actually build an alternative model of truth and autonomy is so important. It's not enough to just critique the existing one because people need hope. They need something that they're striving for. Simply fighting against is often really insufficient to motivate people in the long run. I think we've gotten to the bottom of the critique <laughs> and now we need to build our way back up to something positive. Right. And you've written in your work that what you consider very important for this is for women to be judges, for women to write constitutions. We have currently two women on the Supreme Court. We three. still, three, oh, that's three. right, I'm sorry, three, <laughs> yeah. So, I'm sorry, yes, it was Peter Ginberg, Elena Kagan, and Sonny Sotomayor, yes, I, I apologize, three. <laughs> three out of nine, so that is yes. considered progress when we had none, but can you say something about this point, which I think is really important because I think it gets a lot of attention to say, why would you think that women would actually decide differently or make, would they make better decisions or would they face the law in different ways? Sonia Sotomayor's yeah. autobiography, she makes a point that her background also informs and shapes her legal thinking, which she said in her confirmation hearing. That was remarkable because until then, lawyers at the Constitution guides me, nothing else. Right, right. And she's admitting what every lawyer knows, right, which is that you give the same information to two different lawyers and they will see it in different ways. And they will see it in different ways because interpretation is an inevitable part of legal analysis. And we all bring our own frames to that interpretation, frames that are shaped by our cultural backgrounds and situation and also by our personal experiences. So, yeah, I do think it's crucial to have women as judges. I think it's crucial to have women as policymakers at all levels and in all branches of government. One of the things I've actually worked on the most over the, the intervening 15 years here has been electoral gender quotas. 
as a mechanism for guaranteeing women's political representation in a variety of other countries. Obviously, I haven't been working on that in the U.S., but in places like Liberia and Myanmar, Burma, and other countries. So so I, I do believe that, and I, I think a situated or, or relational vision of truth makes it obvious why that's necessary, and gender is not the only relevant line here. In certain countries, there already are reserved seats for certain kinds of minority groups, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and so on. I'm not certain that reserved seats are the best way to do this, either for women or for minority groups, but there are ways of guaranteeing certain levels of representation. And I think that's crucially important. Otherwise, you're not hearing everything you need to hear. And you've written about the fact that imposing such rules, say quotas or numbers, something like that, is complicated because there's inevitable backlash, that people don't trust it, and they don't think it's of their own volition. Voluntary not meaning they just feel like doing it, but that they don't feel they really shared in the process. So the work has to be done to explain why a relational truth is actually a powerful tool and not a weakened version of the real truth that they all learned in school. Exactly. So it's a real radical shifting of everybody's thinking to say this is actually good because it's for a better version of what we think the truth is rather than it is a modification that fixes a little problem here. So it's a, it's yes. a pretty radical change. It really is. And in that way, my view is different from, for example, the view of the committee, the International Committee that enforces the CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the major international human rights convention addressing these issues. That committee envisions quotas as a temporary measure. It calls them temporary measures. And I don't envision them as a temporary measure. I think that adequate democracy requires permanent representation for all of the major groups in a society. And if, in fact, that doesn't happen through whatever electoral system you have, you need to change the rules to guarantee it, because without it, you don't have a functioning democracy. And as you said earlier, because the rules were man-made and yeah. quite literally made by men, and they didn't <laughs> come from the heavens, from exactly. they weren't taken in tablets from the mountain given by God. So yeah. in some ways... I think every intervention is perceived that this is changing what's natural, what's right, and what's based in natural law. I think the other thing is otherwise we'll unleash all sorts of mechanisms. And, and I wonder whether when people say it's temporary, this is a politically expedient way of making men not feel so anxious. Yes, it's possible. And I certainly wouldn't want to generate more anxiety. But I do think actually it's important because very often it's understood as affirmative action, essentially. Right? And it's not. What it actually is, is guaranteed representation. And that's a different thing. Guaranteed representation has to do with what we want our democratic institutions to be doing and how they need to be composed in order to do it well. Right. I'm going to ask you a difficult question. And okay. you, have to, you can choose not to answer it. When you teach in a law school, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I don't know, I'm sure there are many women faculty at Indiana University in the law school, you know, which has probably changed from the early 70s when they were yes. here for women. They were actually as many women enrolled in law schools now, in some schools more than men. When you teach this in a classroom, in a lecture hall or something, that it's interesting because then do people start looking around and saying, I wonder if what I say is going to matter to the professor differently because of the situatedness that they say, aren't we supposed to be in this neutral space where my opinion is just backed up by evidence and how well I read the cases and how smart I am? Or is it going to be, if the professor is saying, it depends on you being situated as a woman in society, 
with all these conditions. I, I don't, and this is, I think, really informs educational practice and touches on equality in speech. That's a very interesting question. I do get student evaluations, so I do know that my male students don't feel particularly um, ignored or devalued. But the question is why? Why don't they, given that I've made these arguments? And I think the answer is, in part, that we have to actually be, we can't be simplistic about our vision of social construction, right? Being female is one aspect of what constructs a person. And for some people, it will be incredibly significant. And for other people, it will be much less significant than other things. Perhaps the fact that the person is living with a disability, or perhaps the fact that the person has a different sexual orientation or whatever. And so for any given person, the aspects of their social construction that are most salient and that most affect what they bring to the classroom, it's going to be different for everybody. And for me as a teacher, I don't just look out and see men and women, right? I see lots and lots of different things in my classroom, people from different backgrounds and people with different characteristics. And it's really valuable to get perspectives that incorporate all of those things. So I hope what my students of all genders and all other categories are thinking is, ah, so maybe part of why I respond this way to this case is because I came from a small town in Indiana. And this professor would want to hear that. And if that's the, what they, the message they get, then I've succeeded. That's powerful. That's interesting. That actually makes for a very engaged classroom that they are aware of that what they will say will matter. Right. And that some people be silenced. You give, a, I think there's a lecture online I watched, and it's maybe from 2013, and you said feminism, which was a bit of a bad word at some point. What do you think it is right now? And I've been teaching undergraduates for 23 years, and I always ask my undergraduate class, who is a feminist? And, and what do you get by way About of 15 years ago, the women were apologetic and said, we're not those men hating bra-burning, you know, anti-men, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all the men, without exception, in my small sample undergraduate freshman class from all over the world, the international, all the men raise their hands immediately because really? they have understood that it's equal pay for equal work, that women should have opportunities to join any profession they want and that they should be in classrooms with them. And they think equality is the overriding mechanism and not dislike of men or some kind of anger. So it's shifted from this caricature of angry women to it's empowered. But that's over 12, 15 years. And 15 years ago, the women would apologize immediately, say, I'm not a feminist. And I would say, do you want to make 67 cents on dollar? Do you want to be not allowed to get a divorce or marry somebody or join a profession or go to medical school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so where do you think feminism is as a concept, a label? You know, I teach law students rather than undergraduates. So actually, I think you have a better handle on this than I do. They're a little more open, I think, when they're 18. <laughs> they are. That's part of it. And also because they're more of a cross-section, right? Law students are a self-selecting group. I think my women students are much more willing to embrace feminism at this point. I think a substantial proportion of the men are more willing to embrace it than used to be. I teach a course on feminist jurisprudence. I always have some men in that class. It's mostly women, but there are always some men. And that's wonderful. That wasn't the case years ago. But I think there still is a meaningful minority that of both men and women that reject the label and regard it as a derogatory term. I don't think we're past that, but I hope 
I hope that you are seeing, you know, people who are four or five years younger than I'm seeing. So perhaps I will shortly have a, a more optimistic view. Exactly. It's interesting. And we're seeing a generation living through something so fundamental, what you said, this possible breakdown of the notion of a shared reality and the Kavanaugh hearings, which were like the Thomas hearings for this generation, the Me Too movement, campus yeah. controversies. So there's a yeah. lot of awareness that I think they are finding their own way of embracing this methodology. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I am heartened by the fact that there is at least around the edges some recognition that these sorts of issues have to be dealt with structurally. That is, you know, the risk in something like the Me Too movement is that we will think, oh, there are all these bad men out there, right? And we should just punish the bad men. And then what we've done is we've located the problem inside the heart and mind of particular individuals instead of locating it in the social structures and patterns. And we'll never solve it if we see it as uh, an individual problem. So I am, I am hopeful about the openness to discuss it, and I would love to see more attention to the structural aspects underlying the problems. What are you working on now? So as you mentioned, for the last 15 years, I actually haven't been doing much American constitutional law. I have been helping to run a center here where we advise constitutional reformers in other countries. Our biggest program, the longest running and the one that generates the most work for us is in Myanmar, Burma. We advise the ethnic minority groups that are negotiating with the government in the current peace process, and we advise them on constitutional reform because they are... I think rightly they understand that the root of their problem is a constitutional foundation, that they need a form of government that gives them more autonomy so that they don't feel like they are at the mercy of the Burman majority in their country. And so we're working with them on that. And I work in particular with women's organizations, trying to think through how increased federalism is going to impact gender equality and the ways that they could adopt a federal system that is more gender equal. So you're um, looking at constitutions that would do things that our constitution, for many good and complicated reasons, does not do, to recognize the existence of minority groups or gender as a category in the constitutional framing. Yes, although probably in Myanmar, the ethnic identities will not be recognized in the constitution. It's rather that the states, okay, the, the regional entities where they live will be given more power. And that means that the ethnic minority that lives in that state will be able to engage in more self-government. Interesting, the federalist system, interesting, great. So yeah. I want to thank you, Susan, so much for joining me. <laughs> it's it's going to make me reread all of all of the <laughs> feminism I've missed. And I have to say, actually, when you said a few men sometimes take classes in feminism, your premise is that feminism is a productive lens through which to view social institutions such as a law. So in some ways, it should be a category across the university that everybody could use. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> okay. Thank you so much.